You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. He is risen. Amen. Turn to John chapter 16. We've been uh, walking through Jesus' last words to his disciples over the last few weeks, and today is Jesus' last words to his disciples. Now, there'll be some interaction in the Garden of Gethsemane, but this is the last moment before they leave to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the last moments that Jesus has with his men. In John chapter 16, we see these last two verses of that chapter that we really need to pay attention to. As a pastor, there are tremendous, well, tremendous responsibilities and tremendous privileges that I I get to be part of. And one of those privileges and honors is to walk with families who have a loved one who's, who's getting ready to leave this world. And oftentimes, many times, I've, I've had the opportunity to sit by a bedside at a home, hospice house, a hospital, and have a conversation with someone who's literally just hours away from leaving this life into the next. You would be amazed at some of the conversations I've had down through the years. And what always just blows me away is when I'm sitting there at the bedside of someone who has their faith in Jesus, has been following Jesus for a long time, of what's not there. And what I mean by that in their conversation and what they're saying to me, what's missing. And, and what's missing is fear. And rather than fear, there's great confidence. There, there's even a calmness in that moment that really doesn't make any sense by the world standards. A calmness that while the rest of the family is frantic and they're all kind of upset as, as they should be, but the very one that, that maybe should be clinging on to life, the very one that should be begging for another doctor, begging for another nurse, begging for some intervention, is oftentimes the very person who is at the most calm, collected, confident, fearless, and quite frankly, over and over again, I've heard this. They look at me right in the eye and they say, I'm ready. What are they ready for? I don't know if you about you, but, but every, every Easter season, I kind of get excited right about Sunday evening, Sunday afternoon. I mean, I know the story. I've been walking through the scripture for years, like many of you have, and you know, we walk through that through the week, and we kind of focus on where Jesus is on each particular day, and kind of think about that Friday we call Good Friday, and the world doesn't understand that either. But there's an excitement that begins building in my heart on Saturday about not only gathering with you and, and worshiping, but also the fact that we are remembering and celebrating the greatest event in all human history. Folks, what we celebrate this morning is the greatest event in human history, period. And it's not just something that's relegated to the past, and that's what I hope to convince you of this morning. It's not just something that that happened over 2,000 years ago. The the same excitement that that I feel leading into Resurrection Sunday is the same excitement that I've seen in, in family members and friends and folks that I've got the able opportunity to serve who are laying on their deathbed 
that same excitement. They're expecting something, not a doctor, not a hospital, not another drug, not more chemo. They're not expecting any of that. What they're expecting is a new life. And folks, let me tell you that it is so real, it's so profound, that there's a calmness in that room and a peace that surpasses all understanding. Let's look at John chapter 16, and let's look at Jesus' final words to the 11. Verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own house, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, and in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Father, we bow in this moment to say thank you. Thank you not only for the excitement that we, that we sense in this congregation, but the change that it has made in our life. That because of you we found purpose, because of you we found meaning and joy, because of you we found peace. And Father, we understand that peace doesn't mean the absence of trouble or tribulation, but it, it means the presence of something real, something beyond this world, something profound and beautiful. And Father, we celebrate the reality of the resurrection this morning, but not just something that happened historically back there, but something that transforms today, something that is real today, something that is alive today. Guide us in your word, and may you be glorified. Father, we recognize that all over the world, we gather with brothers and sisters in places like North Korea, and in China, and the Ukraine, and Iraq, and Iran, and Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia, Father, people all over the world this morning, worshiping you. Because the king has risen, and there is no king greater than him. Father, we love you. We thank you for all you've given us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want you to focus in on that last sentence in verse 33. I have overcome the world. Now, I'm going to give you a little grammar lesson this morning, because I know that's why you came to resurrection service. You want to learn about some grammar, right? Great. We're all on the same page. A little bit of something happening in this text here that I want to bring your attention to. And in the Greek language behind your English translation, there's something happening in this text that I really need to bring your attention to. It's something called the perfect active indicative. Doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy? The perfect active indicative. That last sentence, I have overcome the world. In the Greek language, we don't see it as clearly in the English, but here's what's happening in this text. The perfect means he is stating an action as though it is already complete. Jesus is saying something here that in our minds and in, in the minds of the disciples hasn't really happened yet. But in Jesus' mind, this is already so true that in his mind it's already a complete action, that he has overcome the world. This active part of this represents the subject. Well, who is the subject? Jesus says, I will overcome the world. And then, of course, the indicative meaning 
that this is something that will be accomplished, has already been accomplished. It's not a hope so, or a maybe so, or maybe it's all going to work out if all the circumstances kind of fit together. No, in Jesus' mind, he has already overcome the world. Now, that's incredibly important because what the disciples are going to experience in the next 12 hours is not going to look like Jesus has overcome the world. He says here that they're going to suffer tribulation. They're going to be scattered. They're going to run. Now, the disciples have already heard this. They've already pushed back on it a few times. Peter in particular. Peter said, Jesus, I am so committed to following you that even if you were to die, I will die with you. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, you know, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Not just Peter, but all of the disciples are going to run for their lives out of fear because of what's about to happen. You see, in just a few moments after Jesus speaks this text, they're going to be making their way across the city of Jerusalem. The upper room, no doubt, was probably in the lower city. And they're going to make their way across the city because Jesus has a garden that he's going to go to. It's a garden that he went to many times. So Jesus and his men are going to walk through the city. Now next week we're going to look at John 17, this this final prayer that Jesus prays. And get this, in John 17 he prays for you. We'll look at that next week. Jesus and his men walk across the city. They go through the eastern gate, which is right there on the edge of the temple mount. He's going to walk across this pathway. It's almost like a bridge that kind of crosses over the Kidron Valley. And over on the other side of the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives. And off the, off the sides of that mountain are, are groves of olive trees. So Jesus leads his men over to this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane meaning the wine press. You know what a wine press is, right? It's, they put grapes in it and they crush the grapes to get the juice. That's what the word Gethsemane means. And Jesus goes to this grape press. The disciples notice that there's not, something's not right with Jesus. He says to his men, pray. He takes Peter, James, and John, goes a little further into the garden, and he tells them, pray. And they can tell that there's something crushing down upon Jesus. Jesus goes and prays, and in that moment, he's, he's wrestling with the reality of the pain and the suffering that he's going to be enduring in the next few hours. He comes back out, his men are asleep. He says, could you have just waited with me for a little while? He says, no worries. It's, all things are coming to fruition now because there's Judas. There's the soldiers, a hundred strong, that have come into the garden to arrest one man. Judas approaches Jesus in this moment that just always blows my mind when I read it, that, that Judas walks up to Jesus, puts his arms around him, and kisses him on the cheek. Jesus says, Judas, do you betray with a kiss? Of course, he was identifying Jesus as the one to be arrested. The soldiers take him, and and the beatings begin. The disciples, at this moment, enter into a tribulation that they could not have possibly well understood, even though Jesus had told them multiple times that what was about to happen was going to change their life forever. Jesus is carried off, and he's but before Caiaphas and Annas, and they're, they're having a trial. But make, make no mistake about it, the trial is not to determine whether Jesus is innocent or guilty. It's not to find out what the truth is. 
the purpose of the trial is to condemn him to death, and that's exactly what they do, an innocent man. Peter and John follow at a distance. Uh, they find their way inside the courtyard, and it's there that Peter begins to deny that he even knows Jesus. He denies that he even has anything to do with Jesus. But it's not just Peter. All of the disciples have scattered. As a matter of fact, at this particular time, it would be hard to find anybody who said that they followed Jesus because they know what's getting ready to happen. The Jews, the Sanhedrin, they can't condemn Jesus to die on a cross. Only the Romans can do that. So they've got to have Pilate. So they take Jesus to Pilate and and Pilate, being the one who can pronounce a death by crucifixion, doesn't see anything that this man has done wrong that demands crucifixion. So Pilate tries to get out from under the responsibility, sends him to Herod. Herod says, I don't want anything to do with this. This is outside my jurisdiction. Sends him back to Pilate. Pilate says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to beat him nearly to death. And maybe that'll be enough. So they... They flog him with a cat of nine tails, a whip with stones and glass tied to the ends, and they tie him to a post and expose his back, and they beat him so ruthlessly in that moment that historians tell us that you could have seen his rib cage, his internal organs exposed. It was just sheer by the grace of God and that the fact that God is going to have his son hang on a cross that he even survived that moment. They bring, they bring Jesus out, bloodied, to the crowd. And you know what they're saying? Crucify him. Pilate says, well, wait a minute. Let me, let me offer Barabbas to you. Maybe, maybe Barabbas, a convicted killer, maybe, maybe you will convict, condemn him to die and let Jesus go free. And you know what they said? They said, give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. By noon... Jesus is nailed to a cross. In the moments that they're nailing him to the cross, at the moment they're nailing him, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I can't imagine being on the hillside at that moment and hearing those words. The, 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 the very man that we're condemning to die, the very man who's innocent, who's done nothing wrong, that very man is calling out to God on behalf of the ones who are perpetrating this murder. What love. By 3 p.m. on that Friday, Jesus cries out to telestai. One Greek word. You just heard Bobby talk about it. Finished. Done. Jesus dies on that cross. The blood pouring out of his body. The soldier standing by just to make sure that Jesus is dead. And, and make sure we, I want, I want you to get this imagery here. I want it to, to kind of stand out in your mind. Oftentimes when we see the, the pictures of the cross depicted, we see Jesus really high off the ground. His, his feet may be five, six feet off the ground. That's not exactly historically accurate. If you look at how the Romans did crucifixion, they often kept the, the criminal low to the ground. Maybe even his feet may have only been just a few feet off the ground. Now imagine you're standing there. You're not looking at Jesus way up high removed from your sight. No, you're looking at him almost eyeball to eyeball. And I want you to look right at him this morning. I want you to see the blood running out of his skull. I want you to see 
want you to see the blood dripping out of him. And a soldier, to make sure that he's dead, takes a spear and runs it through his side, underneath his ribcage, through his lung, into his heart. Pulls that spear out, and the Bible says that blood and water flows out of his side. It was against Jewish law to leave a body on the cross past that afternoon because it was Passover. And Jesus lived his whole life, and the only thing he owns was the clothes that he was wearing. And guess what? They stripped him of that, and they gambled with it at the feet of the cross, at the foot of the cross. Jesus has nothing, not even a tomb, a family tomb in which to be buried. Joseph of Arimathea steps forward and says, I'm going to offer him my tomb. They take his lifeless body off this cross and make sure you understand and get this clearly because there are rumors of otherwise. Make sure you understand Jesus is dead. No one could survive it. They take his body. They begin to wrap it in in cloth and spices some 70 pounds worth. They take his body and they place it in Joseph's tomb. And all while this is going on, just as you heard in the video, there is already a story being cooked up and there's going to be a guard placed at a grave. Have you ever heard such a thing? Soldiers placed at a grave because this man had claimed that he would come back to life. And to make sure that the disciples didn't steal the body, they placed that body in the tomb. They sealed that tomb with a big stone and there's a guard posted around the outside. Now let me ask you, what part of any of that sounds like Jesus overcoming? Put your feet in the sandals of the disciples who were with Jesus when he said, I have overcome the world. What what did Jesus mean by that? He didn't overcome the Sanhedrin. He, he He didn't overcome in Gethsemane. Remember, Peter wanted to pull his sword and actually did. Pulls his sword and cuts the ear off of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. What does Jesus say? Jesus says to Peter, put up your sword. This is not the time for a sword. Don't you know I could call down legions of angels? So he didn't overcome in Gethsemane. He didn't overcome a Caiaphas and Annas. Annas, he didn't overcome before Pilate. And ultimately, we have a dead teacher in a tomb. And every one of these disciples believe that it's over. Every one of them. They go back home. Eventually, they just kind of hide out in the upper room because they don't know where else to go. In the minds of the disciples on that day, it's over. In the minds of the Jewish leadership, they were celebrating because this man who threatened them, they've put him to death. It's over now. Pilate is celebrating because he's not going to have to deal with a riot because that's the reason he finally washed his hands of the whole thing and gave Jesus over to be crucified. He didn't want a riot. He didn't want to have to answer to Caesar. So he's celebrating. So how in the world could Jesus say, take heart, I have overcome the world? Turn over to John chapter 20. Jesus said he had overcome, and he said it as though it had already occurred. The rest of the world this morning, the majority of the world, believes that we're celebrating something to do with a bunny 
eggs in a tree, chocolate, pretty clothes. Honestly, folks, the majority of the world thinks that's, that's what this is about. They, they, the majority of the world thinks that Easter has something to do with a bunny. Why? Because that's what their culture tells them. But let me tell you what they're not thinking. They're not thinking that Jesus overcame if they're thinking about it at all. As a matter of fact, the disciples on that day and the most of the world today think that, that if Jesus was even real at all, if he was a real person, then, then he's dead. He's in a tomb. He had some pretty cool things to say about love, and he demonstrated love. He was a pretty good teacher, a pretty good guy. Most of the world thinks if they think anything about Jesus, they think, well, he, he was just a good guy. Yeah, maybe we should emulate some things that he done. This whole idea of loving neighbor as much as you love self. Maybe, maybe we should kind of take some of that and, and live that out. Maybe he's, he's worth just kind of emulating a little bit. But ultimately, the world believes that if this man lived at all, if he's real at all, he's dead, graveyard dead, in a tomb, buried somewhere in Jerusalem. And who really cares? John chapter 20, verse 24 now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Came from where? Where did Jesus come from? Well, Jesus, just as he predicted, is alive and well after three days of being in the tomb. He shows up in the upper room. Now, now what's amazing to this is that the, the women that were following Jesus, they're the first to discover what's going on here. They, they discover that the stone's been moved. They, they hear from an angel, and then even Jesus visit them and tells them, go tell my men. Go tell the disciples. Go find them and tell them because Jesus knew they had scattered because they're afraid. A new day has arrived. A day that I predicted. He's in the upper room with them, but Thomas is not there and they're telling Thomas, Jesus has arisen. Jesus has arose. Thomas, you got to believe. And you know what Thomas does? I ain't believing none of that. Because in Thomas's eyes, dead men don't rise. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like a man who's given up. It sounds like a man who doesn't believe what Jesus told him clearly. It sounds like a man who's discounting everything that Jesus did even raising Lazarus from the tomb. Thomas is filled with doubt. And some of you here this morning, and some of you watching online this morning, you are filled with doubt. Thomas makes a pretty clear request here. Unless I can touch the scars, unless I can actually put my finger in the wounds, I'm not going to believe. That's pretty, that's pretty bold, isn't it? Man. But you know what? I've met people who say almost exactly the same thing. Hey, I'll believe in this Jesus if he'll just show up and do a miracle. No, you won't. You know why I know that? Because I've got a whole bunch of people in the New Testament who saw what Jesus did, and yet they didn't believe. Thomas says, unless I touch the wounds, I'm not going to believe. Well, guess what? Eight days later, 26, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, and the doors were locked. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, 
peace be with you. You Remember what he said in his last words there? He says, you're going to find peace in me. You're going to find peace as I overcome the world. You are going to go through tribulations and sorrows, but yeah, you're going to find peace. Guess what the disciples have found? Well, they have found peace except for one, Thomas. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus knew what Thomas had said in that upper room. He knew. Look what he says. Verse 27, put your finger here. See my hands. Put it in your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Isn't that what Thomas requested? Isn't that what some of you are requesting? That if I can can just see a miracle, then I'll believe. Notice, I want you to see how Thomas responds here. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. I would imagine that Thomas is on his face. He doesn't know, he no longer has to touch the scars. He no longer has to put his hands in the wounds because when he sees Jesus, he knows that Jesus is in fact alive. Jesus is in fact out of the tomb. Now for those of you who are struggling with doubt, for those of you who are struggling, maybe your maybe your shoes, maybe your feet are in the shoes of Thomas. Let me be very clear with you this morning. How sad it would be for you to live your whole life with this truth in front of you. That that a man who was dead lives again. A man who predicted his own death, predicted his own resurrection, and fulfilled it completely just as the Scripture proclaims. And, get this, just as much as the Romans had documented that something happened outside the Bible, says that something happened. Of course, they said that the disciples stole the body. But to this day, there is no body. So you, friends, who doubt, let me just put this right in front of you as best I can. Something happened on that day. And I'm going to offer to you that just as Jesus predicted, it happened. Jesus is alive. Now listen, I know everything in your logic is telling you the opposite. I know that everything in your being is like, dead men don't live. I get that. I get that. Does it take away the reality that every one of these 11 men were never the same after this moment. They, they're even willing to lay down their life. Do you think they would lay down their life for a lie? Do you think these 11 men who, who went and stole the body and hid it somewhere else, do you think that when the pressure comes in the New Testament church, when they are threatened to be put to death and all of them eventually are put to death, John dies of old age, they all suffered tremendously, do you think for any moment that those disciples would have said, look, I can't suffer anymore. The body is buried right outside of Jerusalem in a hidden tomb. Go get the body. That's not what they do. They live out their entire life of persecution and tribulation and sorrow because there's an inner joy inside of them that nobody could take away. Jesus has overcome the world. But not only has Jesus overcome the world, guess what? We have the promise of overcoming too. Turn over to 1 John. Now the same John that wrote the gospel is the same John who writes 1 John. He also writes 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. But John is an old man at this time. John has suffered tremendously over many years by the time he writes this letter. The reason I want you to go to 1 John is because I want you to hear something that John says much later in his life. Look at chapter 2, and let's pick it up, verse 12. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. 
for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now listen to this. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Look at that again. I am writing to you, young men, because you have what? Say it. Say it again. You have overcome the evil one. And get this. The same Greek structure that Jesus said in John 16 is the same Greek structure that John is saying all these many years later. Now, where do you think John may have gotten the idea about this idea of overcoming? You see, the reality is is that what Jesus did back there, what Jesus accomplished back there is not just relegated to something back there. It's real and alive today. And just as Jesus overcome, get this, John says to these young men, you have overcome. Past tense. You, there's no temptation that you're having to face. There's no trouble or sorrow that you're having to go through. If your faith is in Jesus, then you have what? Already overcome. The only problem is you just don't believe it yet. You see, sorrow and trouble have a way of doing that. If you've put your faith in Jesus and you've come from darkness into light, not only has Jesus overcome, but you have overcome. You have overcome. Listen, whatever you're facing, whether that be cancer, a failing marriage, a child that has went off the rails, whatever you're facing, Jesus is saying that you have past tense overcome it because he has past tense overcome death, hell, and the grave. And because you are in him, your faith is in him, there is nothing going to have victory over you. How do I know that? Well, look at what John says in chapter 4, verse 4. He uses it again. John says in 1 John 4, verse 4, he says, little children, you are from God, and you have what? Overcome them, for who he is in you is greater than he is in the world. The context of that verse is that there were false teachers creeping into the church, and many people were being misled. And John says, hey, you need to test these people. You need to test these spirits and make sure that they are true or not. And he says, little children, you have overcome them, them who, who despise the name of Jesus, those who can care less about what you believe, those who mock you, those who make fun of you, those who, who deride you. We have a lot of college students back in town today. I'm glad you're here. It's good to see each one of you. Let me ask you a question. How is it on that college campus, the culture? How is it there? Is is Christianity embraced? I think we all know the answer, no. If you name the name of Christ, you're kind of looked at a little bit differently. Jesus says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who is in you? Well, Jesus Christ, the righteous who laid down his life, went into a borrowed tomb and resurrected three days later. But notice what he says in chapter 5. Turn over one more page. I want you to see this. I think this is the strongest statement that John makes about overcoming. I think you can see the connection of these two verses back to what he heard Jesus say all those years ago. Verse 4, chapter 5. For everyone who has been born of God, for everyone who has been born of God, what do they do? Overcomes the world. I I don't know about you, but have you been feeling the pressure of the world lately? Have you been feeling the the crush of all that's coming at you? 
Every day it's something in the news. Every day it's something on social media. Every day it's something else. It's bad news on top of bad news on top of bad news, whether it be inflation, gas prices, war in Ukraine. I don't know about you, but it's overwhelming. The world has this, has this gravitational pull on your soul and spirit. It's pulling you down and pulling you back. John says, for those of you who put your faith in Jesus, for those of you who've been transformed by the good news of the gospel, this is the victory. God has overcome the world. Those who've been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, your faith, your faith, trust in Jesus, your faith in him that is taking you from darkness into light. It's that faith that gave you a brand new start. For some of you, you've never put faith in Jesus yet, so therefore you are still there in your brokenness, thinking that somehow the world's got all the answers. You're still looking for purpose and meaning in your life, and you haven't found it yet. You haven't found it in a bottle of alcohol. You've not found it in relationships. You've not found it in a needle. You've not, talk, you've not, you've not found it in that pill that you're taking. You haven't found it through a psychologist. You haven't found it through another relationship. You haven't found it by having children. You haven't found it by filling your bank account with money, and yet you're still looking. And I'm here to tell you today, it's already here. It's already done. Jesus has already overcome. The tomb is empty. What are you waiting on? Put your faith where it matters. Because that empty tomb calls you to a place to choose. And if you've chosen otherwise... Make sure that you understand there are circumstances connected to your choice. Verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Is it really, listen, is it really that straightforward? Is it really that simple? Is it really that low shelf? Yes, it is. It had to be if I came into the kingdom. It had to be on low shelf if I was going to put my faith in something, and I did when I was 16. So why would you not? Why would you choose to focus more on what the world says this weekend is about than what it's really about? If Jesus walked out of the tomb alive, then everything that he said about life, death, hell, the grave, love, peace, joy, all of it's true. Just like those people I talked about at the very beginning whose lives have impacted my life, who are now in heaven that I will see again one day, who are laying in that, in that bedside with hours to live with confidence, calmness, peace, joy, and anticipation. That they're going to see Jesus and see heaven and see all that they've been reading about their whole life. It's not just at that moment of death that you overcome, but it's today, real, right now in your life. Whatever struggle, whatever pain, whatever hardship you're going through, we will overcome at death, but you can overcome today because Jesus has overcome. My dad, my dad is probably one of the most influential people in my life, hands down. He turned 85 a few weeks ago. And in 1991, he turned a tractor over on top of him. I was there with him. And uh, he crushed both of his legs. Uh, and he ended up losing his right leg above the knee. And I remember that like it was yesterday. He's air, air cared to, to Baptist Hospital, Winston-Salem, and um, get the bad news that he's going to lose this leg, and he may very well lose this one. 
They were able to save that leg, and he was in ICU for a long time. And my sister and myself and my mom would take turns staying in the ICU all night with my dad. And there came this point where they'd done the last surgery on this leg, and he had all the pins and stuff putting this leg back together. And, you know, you're in the room, and you... you, you <laughs> You look at a bed where there should be a leg and there's no leg there. My dad's a farmer, has been his whole life. And here's a 21-year-old trying to figure out how I'm going to speak to my dad about hope because I'm thinking, I'm thinking in my 21-year-old self that he's going to be depressed, he's going to be down, he's going to give up, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna not be dad anymore. <laughs> and I can remember sitting there that night they were bringing him out of the, the medications. He was kind of coming back to himself, and we were able to start having conversations where he'd been out for just weeks. And so I'm there. It's 2 a.m. in the morning, and I'm in the ICU of Baptist Hospital, and here's a 21-year-old who thinks he knows something, going to try to give his dad some encouragement about the fact that he doesn't have two legs anymore. So I'm, my voice is probably cracking, something like this. And I'm trying to talk with my dad, and, and he's looking down at the end of the bed, and it's obvious. It's above the knee. His knee's gone. And uh, I thought, oh, this is a good time for me to give him some encouragement. So I start stumbling over my words and trying to just say something that made some sense. And I'll never forget what he said. He leaned up in the bed. He grabbed the little rail on the side of the bed, and he, he rolled over, and he looked me right in the eyeball, and he says, son, I will overcome this. Now, let me tell you what that meant. Let me interpret that for you. That whether he ever walked again, or whether he died in that hospital bed, or whether he could go on and live another many years I saw in my, God, in my dad's eye, right there in that moment, I saw in my dad's eyes the same thing that I've seen in all the eyes of all the people that I've sat next to their bedside where they have hours to live and they have that same confidence, that same peace, that same joy that they too will overcome. Why? Because Jesus overcome and the tomb is empty. So, all that is left, all that is left, it's for you to put your faith where it matters. Or maybe you've already done that and the world is crushing in on you. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that no matter what you have to face, no matter what this life throws at you, Jesus overcome, he overcame, and so will you. Father, we love you. You have loved us with a great love, an everlasting love. A love that is indescribable, incomprehensible, but yet you loved us with an everlasting love. That love was never more clearly displayed than on a cross of suffering and bloodshed. And Father, I have experienced that love a thousand times over. Times when I was wrong, times when I had failed, times when I had sinned against you and done the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, your love was still there. I've seen your love in countless numbers of people 
who had hours left to live. I've seen your grace and your mercy lived out of a thousand ways by peoples whose lives have been changed by the good news of the gospel. Lord, you overcame. And Lord, there is a cloud of witnesses who've overcame as well. Not because they were good people, but because of the transformation that you made in their life. And Father, this morning, there are some here filled with doubt. There are some watching online that are filled with doubt. They've heard it before. And yet, they still reject. Father, I pray that you would press down upon their heart now that they would understand the significance of rejecting this incredible truth that you walked out of that grave alive. You're seated at the right hand of the Father, and you are coming back one day. Father, draw them to yourself. Today would be an awesome day for them to put faith in you, to believe, to quit trying to hold on to their own life and control the outcomes, but to put their faith, faith and trust in something greater than themselves. Father, for those who've already done that, I know this world has a, a pull on us. It's trying to drag us back into some old life, old lifestyle that has no life in it at all. Father, I pray that they would know that there's no temptation that has come towards them, no, no trouble that has come upon them that they cannot overcome because you overcame. Father, as we worship in these closing moments, may you have your will in your way in this moment, in this time. Freely draw those to yourself. Change their life. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook, 